0: So the children ages 3 to 5 can be dismissed to Children's Church and those 6 to 9 can come and get your clipboards. And Boy, only one coming after clipboard today, huh? they they become scarce. Okay. We are thankful to have uh, McDonald's with us to share in the ministries that the Lord has had them involved in over the, the years and particularly now as they represent war and lead and uh, over when you are involved in Christian circles you begin to tell stories and realize how much overlap there is in different areas of and so Phil and I were at Cedarville at the same time he's a little older than me very little but and, um, and his father was, teacher of one of the classes that I had there at, at the time and involved in the, as a missions instructor there at Cedarville as well and uh, then he just said he's been in Africa and been in Zambia and one of the missionaries they've been there with uh, is brother-in-law of my tennis partner in, in college even so they've diff- different connections and then he's talking about different pastors or people in ministry and so Uh, He's going to come and initially share some things and then his wife will come again She shared in sunday school, but she'll share some more and then he'll preach to us today So we are excited about having them with them and share what the lord's doing in their ministries
1: Thank you pastor it's a privilege for us to be here today we You've been supporting our ministry since 2004, 18 years, and we appreciate that. And then you just increased our support last fall. We appreciate that very much, uh, particularly these days of inflation. I don't know how. Uh, I've worked in 39 countries, and I don't know how to uh, condense what we do. Because I get this question, whether I'm on an airplane or if someone asks me what do I do for a living, Uh, How do you you combine all the the hundreds of projects we've been involved in in the different people groups? But what I'd like to do today, though, is I'm going to leave you with four verses that kind of drives our ministry. Why we do what we do and how we do what we do. Um, Leader empowerment, I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, We used to be called closed-door ministries, and when you first started, uh, we basically have worked in... uh, Persecuted church, these are closed countries, and we use the word closed. That means you can't get a missionary visa to live there. It means you have to go in there some other way. You have to provide a business opportunity or some kind of social uh, benefit or humanitarian benefit for a country that lets you live there. Um, So that, uh, we realize, though, that the Lord is expanding our ministry beyond just persecuted countries countries that persecute Christians, or mostly Islamic, Hindu, Buddhist countries uh, that do that, they don't really like you coming in and telling them about a different religion from their own, understandably. So we actually today represent two ministries. Uh, uh, My wife started Women at Risk out of our ministry about 16 years ago, and in a minute I'll introduce her. Uh, but about 2003, I started realizing there's this huge problem of dependency uh, on the mission field. And it's happened for 150 years. Uh, you go over there, you're working with very impoverished people. They don't have money. And so if you want to do a ministry, the money, you raise money from back here, and then pretty soon it goes over there, and year after year, decade after decade, century after century, they become dependent. So we've created a gigantic welfare system over there. And so for the last 15 years, we've been trying to break that cycle. And I'll give you some stories of how we do that today. But when I think about the persecuted church, I'm reminded of, of a, a particular day when after several Muslims had come to Christ. And, and I have to be honest, when I first hit the mission field in 1985, I thought Islam was so strong as religion. I didn't know how any Muslim had ever become a Christian. I, never, I, I didn't have the faith Within a few years, hearing the gospel and getting the scriptures in their language, we found people who would, would actually turn to Christ from Islam. Now the problem with that, that creates a lot of anger in the Islamic community. And one day, one particular day, uh, after a Friday, Friday prayers at the mosque, a riot formed and came towards our Christian village and began to terrorize. We had about 150 uh, families living in, a, in, in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Villages are segregated by occupation and by religion. So if you were a, a Christian, you lived in a Christian village. If you were a Muslim fisherman, you lived in a, a Muslim village of fishermen. If you were a Hindu... A uh, bricklayer, you live in a village, a Hindu bricklayer. That's just the way that this, this, the caste system has worked for thousands of years in that in part of the world. But when Muslims came to Christ, they came and attacked our Christian village. And uh, afterwards, we weren't there at the time, but I talked to the principal of our, uh, we had a, a Christian school on a mission compound guy had two master's degrees, grown up in the city. Now we're now down in a jungle, right? In a jungle compound setting. And some young teenage boys came running up to him and said, uh, schoolmaster Shai, you've you got to get out of here. Uh, there's, a, there's a mob coming, and they're coming after Christian leaders, and they're going to kill all of you. And, and, he, and he says, what do you mean? You've got you to run in the jungle. He says, I've never been in a jungle. I don't know where to run and hide. And he said, just go that direction. So he took off running. And he crossed the stream, and he was thinking, I can't run forever. And he got the idea, there was, there was like a, a, some reeds growing up. And he snapped the reed off, and it created like a snorkel. And he submerged himself in this muddy water for four hours and breathed through that reed, coming up out of the water with the other regions. The mob came looking for him, couldn't find him. Uh, other of our leaders just took off for the jungle. And practically nobody was killed that day. Now the ladies, though, because in Islam, women are kind of protected. That's why they're behind the veil. The women knew they wouldn't be killed, so they tried to stay behind and protect their household as the mob was coming through. And one particular uh, young lady who my wife had grown up with because she was a missionary kid from that place, uh, this lady stood there and she, she, she held the, the, the gate, the two posts in the gate she held, wouldn't let him in. And she said, you can't come in here. And they said, no, we want to burn your house down. And she says, no, I'm not going to let you. So they beat her and finally they, they, they uh, got her out of the way. was uh, miraculous she lived. And later... She was telling us a story about how her husband went and stayed in the creek and the Lord spared his life and then she got beat up, but she still lived. Afterwards, my wife said to me, She says, You know, if that ever happens to us and you're running into the jungle and I'm staying back protecting our house, getting beat up, you might as well just keep on running and never come back. Now, we've been married 44 years, 11 months, three days. And we have had an unreal adventure of our life uh, working overseas. Had no idea. If you told me uh, 35 years ago that today I'd be setting up an 800-acre farm in Zambia that's going to fund a clinic and schools, I wouldn't have believed you. But we've just had this unusual ride. So I'm going to ask her to come up and, and say a word.
2: I never know when he's going to tell that story. <laughs> I had the greatest privilege in the world of growing up as a missionary kid in lands steeped in traditions of the Taliban. I went overseas when I was five. My father was a surgeon, and he moved us from Grand Rapids, Michigan, to East Pakistan. And I spent all my formative years in lands steeped in traditions of the Taliban. I went to boarding school in West Pakistan And by the age of 14, I had been through two wars. We lived in a war zone. At age 7, we were bombed every night by India. And at age 14, it was a civil war where East Pakistan was um, attacked by West Pakistan. And there was a genocide against the Bangladeshi people. And in nine months, three million people were killed. And we stayed there through both of those wars so that the doctors could provide medical care to the Bangladeshi people. And India came to our defense, and we became Bangladesh. And my girlfriend, who was 14, was raped. And she fought back. And not every Muslim culture is like this. Please don't leave here and think I said that. But where I grew up, it was traditional, really, ISIS, Islamic, Taliban, al-Qaeda mentality. And she fought back and screamed. And they told her, you don't have a voice. You don't have the right to fight back. How dare you cry out? And so they poured acid not in her face, as is usual to this day, but down her throat and took away her vocal cords forever. And God used the acid of her suffering to burn a hole in my heart and give me a passion to be the voice of the silenced, as Proverbs tells us, and to just give them a safe place where they can rewrite the story of their life, start over and hear the worth and the dignity of the Elohim creator God whispered into their every day. And just give them a place where they can rewrite their story one day at a time at their own pace and in their own way. And when we went overseas as a uh church planning missionaries, traditional missionaries. Really, the oldest programs of Women at Risk International just began at my kitchen table. It was whatever fell in my pathway that day. If they were stomping on a prostitute outside my gates, that's what I dealt with. If it was domestic violence, wife number two, that's what I dealt with. And so today, Women at Risk International is in 58 countries, and we address 15 different risk issues that attack the worth of a woman a child, a man, a family unit. And we, um, we're most known for human trafficking, our fight against this century's fastest-growing arm of crime because all our product, as I told the Sunday school class, is anti-trafficking. It's either made by rescued women in a safe house or it's made by at-risk women, rescued men and women in a safe house or by at-risk women in a preventative program where if something about their story says they're exponentially at risk, so we pull them into our preventative programs and teach them a trade. And since people shop, they know us for that. But every 30 seconds, somewhere in the world, a human being is sold against their will to do something they would never do on their own. And so this is a wildfire, and it's in our community. As I told Sunday school class, up to 300,000 minors, children, American citizens in this country. New York has 1,500 minors for sale at any given time. That is more minors for sale in the state of New York than all the women of all ages in a whole year that die of breast cancer. This is a carnage of the innocent. And this is a cry from my heart to yours, to circle your cradle and to be a safe place. So today, Women at Risk International, we have over 230 programs, and one program might be five safe houses, or one might be 500 women, or 440 women in Nicaragua, where we have a safe house. Imagine, Think think about teaching 440 women to make jewelry at one time. It is organized chaos. They're all sitting at tables. There's chickens and goats and kids. It's what my brother calls an estronomy. It's a tsunami of estrogen. (laughs) But imagine trying to train people how to make that. So whatever, and it might be 130 women. In America, we don't like big institutionally sized things, so we tend to like safe houses that are 8 to 10 women. But what I want you to know when we walk away today Um, Is that there's hope The most incredible stories of men women and children rising up And and coming to know the true and living God I walked into a safe house in Thailand one day and there was a man there Who was um, I had taken some women from a Baptist church in Michigan And I told him now these girls are rescued pretend. This is Sunday school class Don't you dare look down your nose at them, you know, and I Beaten into their heads and all this and I forgot to tell them that 86 percent of the male homosexual prostitutes there are heterosexual men who've been raised from age two by their families and told you're going to do this to support us or else so I walk in and here's June fingernails to here makeup and I was like oh I forgot to tell them about this and I thought oh if they blow this they were fine they were like moms. They were just fine. So that day, the girls were walking to work, and they saw June, and they knew he hated his life. They knew that this had been forced on him since he was two. They had did That family didn't have girls. They had taken their boys to the local monk and said, which one has the spirit of a woman? The monk picked the one, and that's what they had forced him to do. And um, they knew he hated his life, so they said, come on. And he wanted to go to a safe house of women, he, you know, and he came to know Christ there. And one day, I was talking to him, because we got him a college degree, and he's going into um, the five-star hotel hospitality industry, and I was talking to him, and I said, June, I said, how, are, how is your family? dealing with the fact that you are you know, engaged to a girl, you you know, go by. In, in that language, you end your sentence one way if you're a girl and another if you're a boy, and he was using the male ending, not the female ending. And he, he said, oh, they don't accept it, Becky. And I was so upset for him, and he said, Beck, Beck. He said, it took me 17 years. He was 17 when we rescued him. 17 years to figure this out can they have 17 years i am such a pygmy of god's grace and faith our survivors are heroes they rise up in our trophies of god's grace i learned more at their feet than they ever learned from me he just forgave just like that And I could tell you story after story. I told you the story of Tom, who we rescued, who was sent by her family, forced into the red light district, who now teaches Bible stories in the slums to kids. One day I said, Tom, what's the best news about your life? What's the best thing about your life? She said, it's not that I know Christ and that my mother who did this to me and my daughter, three generations all headed in a different direction. I said, okay. She says, it's not that there's a church plant in the village that I came from. Because we heard 90% of the girls in that village were being told, when you grow up, this is what you have to do. And so we took our sewing academy. I don't know if there's an owl bag back there. But we took our sewing academy back to the village, mushroom farming, cosmetology, to help women preventatively so they knew there were other ways to make a living. I said, well, what is it? She goes, Becky, some days I wake up and I have to remind myself of what my life used to be. Do you know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit. I can rescue a woman, but only the Holy Spirit can make her look in the mirror and not remember her past and put it behind her. And so I want you to understand that there's great hope and healing. As I mentioned in Sunday school, we've led traffickers to Christ. A trafficker in China, was watching our women walking and praying in his red light district. And he was like, "These are uh, one was Swede and one was Brit, and they were like six foot, you know, tall women. And he's like, what are these crazy women doing here? Don't they know it's dangerous here? Why are they doing this? And every day he would watch them out his window. And then one day he called them in for tea. They went into this trafficker's house and had tea. And he said, who is that person that follows you? Now, missionaries don't talk about this in pulpits very often. <laughs> I'm just telling, the, telling you, this is an incredible story. They said, nobody's following us. He goes, oh, no, no, no. He said, I've been watching you, and I couldn't understand why you're not afraid. And he said, one day I saw a powerful man following you, and I know power. And he said, I want to follow him. And they said, describe him. He goes well. I've never seen anything, I don't know how to describe it. He's like got arms from one side of the road to the other side of the road, and they kind of look like wings. <laughs> and they took him to the scripture where it says that the army of God, the angel armies of God, are encamped about us and led him to Christ. You know, they don't see that, but after that, they Lisa said to me, Becky, now I never worry, God is protecting me. I have. I have a horde of angel armies surrounding me that I can't see. I don't know what what this guy saw because they were telling him can't be. And so I just want you to know that at the end of the day, we were all trafficked. Did you know that? We were all sold out in Genesis 3.16 to the prince of the power of the air. And God didn't look down on life outside the garden and go, nasty little life you have there. Go do something nice. Like I said, he sent an undercover rescue on Christmas Day that paid for us with the blood that we sang of, the Lamb of God, with the blood of God. He paid for us and bought us back. I love that all our pearls are real. When I work with women and they're making pearls, I tell them, you're just like the pearl. You know that pearl, that clam is just sitting in the bottom of the ocean, minding its own business? And along comes an unfair attack. And it has two choices. It can fight it and be a mutant, or it can wrap it in layers and layers and layers of beauty, and create a pearl of great price. And the greater the heat in the ocean, and the longer the attack, the bigger the pearl grows and the more valuable it is. And I told him in life, as men and women, we had two choices: when life attacks us fairly or unfairly, we can fight it and be a mutant. Oh, we all know people like that, don't we? <laughs> They're just this open open pussy oozing sword that never closes shut, right? Or we can wrap it in layers of beauty and godliness and dignity and be a pearl great price. Jesus Christ called himself the pearl great price because he took an unfair attack for you and me. And he paid the price and bought us back. And that's the greatest rescue story of all. And that's what we earn the right to share with them, that there's a God who cares who rewrites, allows us to rewrite the story of our lives every day with an ink pen dipped in the blood of the lamb. And so we've all been bought back from the slave market of sin and that's what we do Why we do it. What we do. And so thank you and thank you for all these years of supporting us. Scripture says those that refresh will themselves be refreshed. And I claim that verse for you because your gifts to us have enabled us to lift lives to safety and to hearing the word of God and have refreshed us to refresh others and so today my prayer is that you too will be refreshed for your faithfulness and giving to those of us that are on the front lines jumping in the trenches, lifting lives. babies, you heard me tell the stories of babies were rescued, men women and children, so thank you and God bless you.
1: She's right, we like that word hope. Hope in English simply means positive expectation or anticipation of something good to happen. It's got kind of the opposite of dread, right? You dread something, you're fearing something. Hope, you're just looking forward to it. So we want to share stories of hope today because there are a lot of them going around. You'll never hear them, you won't see them in the news. But someday we're going to spend the rest of eternity introducing you to people that have had found hope in Jesus Christ. When people ask me, what does the word empower mean? You're you're president of leader empowerment and development. That creates an acronym, lead. What what does empower mean? Well, it simply means to equip. It means to enable. It means to supply. It means to help somebody help themselves. And that's what we want to do. Because times have changed uh, in missions over the years And so when I go into a country, people say, how do you go into a country and find a project? By the way, we do projects. Projects have a beginning and an end. It might be five months, it might be five years, it might be longer, but at least there's an end so they don't become dependent on the continual flow of money from America or Europe. Uh, So when I look at empowerment, I come in and they say, well, where do you start? How do you find people that need help? Well, there's billions of people that need help, right? Uh, but, you know, if any of you are in, in an industry, for any length of time, you know there are networks, right? And you know people that know people, and you network. And that's what we do. We, we go in, we find out, oh, there's, a, there's an association of churches, and they need help, okay? We sit down with them. the first thing I do is what's called a needs assessment. Because for years under colonial missions where the big white man came and the poor natives didn't know anything, he did everything, told them everything what to do. It's all changed now. People speak English around the world. People are educated. A lot of these people have more education than we do. And, and you sit down, but they still need help. And So you sit down and you say, what are your needs? And I look at the needs. I learned this from my Ph.D. work at Michigan State. I learned there's, there's needs in certain categories. And we look at four different categories in LEAD. Uh, the first one is spiritual. There are some great humanitarian organizations out there. Uh, secular organizations, USAID, there's Oxfam. Uh, We've got religious organizations like World Vision, Compassion International. They're doing a great job on the social side of things. But, you know, uh, we go in primarily for spiritual reasons. Um, you know, it, it's a very interesting that... The Lord said in Matthew chapter sixteen, "I will build my church; the gates of hell will not prevail against it." And was it one of the last things Jesus said? "Go into all the world and preach the gospel." He could have said, "Go into all the world and help people socially or economically uh, or intellectually." That's great, but he said, "No, go in and preach the gospel." Because what profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Because he doesn't know the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Where at some time in your life, you realize you cannot save yourself. You don't have enough good works because we're born sinners. But you learn you can transfer all your trust onto one person who died on a cross, who is a perfect human sacrifice, 100% God, 100% man, the man Jesus Christ he died on that cross to save us from our sins. If we just transfer our trust onto him and make that decision of faith to trust him for our eternal destiny, we are saved. And that's the pure gospel. And that's what we, that's what we do. So we're involved in evangelism, church planning, discipleship, that is our goal. We want to help people do that. One of my first partners uh, started working with him 33 years ago, Dr. John Shurkar in Bangladesh. He had three master's degrees and an earned doctorate from the United States. Uh, one of the 10% in those days that I actually went back to his own country after all that education. I'm working in the Philippines setting up a seminary. I get a letter from Dr. John. and He goes, Phil, um, I took all these courses for master's degrees, and doc- but no one ever taught me how to set up a school. I want to set up the first graduate level seminary in Bangladesh. Graduate level means master's degree level. In English, now here was the country at the time, 80 million people didn't have a single seminary it's 90 percent islamic that explains it today they have 160 million people it's still the only english-speaking seminary after 30 years so it's interesting how we we got going on that because our children had health problems and i knew we wouldn't be able to stay there long term and I knew I had like two years to get the school set up. And I wrote, I said, John, my, my training in Michigan State was in international development, international education, how to set up school systems uh, and, and other things. So one day he says to me, is this going to be a mission school? I said, N- no, no. Is this going to be a Bangladeshi school? It's going to be separate. Never happened before. You see, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you're going to have a board of directors that are Bangladeshis, not Americans. It's always been American missionaries in the past who said, oh, we're going to start something. We're going to start a mission school, and someday we'll turn it over. And 25 years go by, and that someday never happens. And we've seen that our whole career. Uh, Both our parents were missionaries, going back to the 40s. Aunts and uncles going back to the 30s. That was the old colonial way. I said, no, this is going to be a Bangladeshi This is Bangladesh. This is your country. It's going to be your school. And he goes, "Well, who's going to be the president?" He says, "I think you should be the president." I said, "Do I look like a Bangladeshi?" No, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be the president. You know, she has got a PhD. I said, do "You have a doctorate." He says, "Well, what if it goes? What if it goes bad?" I said, "Tell you what. You can't lose face in Asia, right? You can't think. Can't get embarrassed." I said, "Tell you what. If this school fails, you blame me. But all the blame on me culturally." You get away scot-free, I'll be the bad American. I'm leaving anyway, which I did in two years. (laughs) Fast forward 33 years later, he didn't need me. Since then, he had a, a, a seminary that has graduated most of the leaders in that country. He started a Bible college in connection with an American Bible college. He has... Plant, he has planted 33 churches in 33 years. Uh, he's built 14 primary schools, uh, elementary schools. Uh, he, he's done all kinds of social activities. He's like the—he's an interesting guy. He's—he's he's a Greek professor who has the gift of preaching. So if you imagine Billy Graham being a Greek professor, that's Dr. John, the, the number one preacher. And COVID caused this lockdown, and we had to close the seminary out there, at the Bible College, and he went back home, and he was really discouraged. And uh, one of the young guys in the church said, Dr. John, you know how many Bengali speakers are around the world? There's like 200 million. He says, and they're all on the internet. We can hook you up on Zoom, and you can preach every Sunday. To everybody around the world. So for the last two years, that's what he's doing. So not only was he the number one preacher in Bangladesh, now he's the number one Bengali preacher around the world. Uh, so, you know, spiritual. It's all about churches. So the spiritual area is one of the kinds. The second area we look at is the intellectual. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, What you have heard from me, the Apostle Paul said, commit thou to faithful men who can teach others also. So we're involved in Bible translations, we're involved in schools, everything from pre-K all the way up to doctoral training. We've sent several uh, people to get earned doctorates to go back to their countries and teach, but we've also had um, pre-K. We do it all levels of education. Probably our, our trophy project there was uh, when I was, uh, for 10 years, we lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and at the mission headquarters, but I would teach at... Uh, Baptist Bible College, seminary in Clark Summit, a module, a doctoral module to, to uh, pastors and school administrators, and we had a couple international students in one of my classes. They were Kachins from northern Burma, Myanmar, we call it nowadays, and these guys are really sharp, and uh, I thought, wow, one's the president of the Bible College, the other one's the vice president of the Bible College, and they said, we want, you know, we want you to come out and see our country. They, they went back. Well, they had been in the States so long, five or six years, getting master's and doctorate degrees, that their kids were now attending American schools. And when I went back to Burma, they, the kids really didn't even know Burmese very well to fit into the school. So their wives started using the Becca and homeschooling, all right, in northern Burma, in English. And one day I get this phone call from, from the president of the Bible college. He says, my wife's rent, running a school in our living room. But all our neighbors and relatives, they want their kids to come to the school. And we'd like to start a school, an English school in this city of 600,000 people. There's not a single school, not an international school. I said, great. Uh, first question, who's going to own the school? He says, well, the church association can't, can't own the school because they can't even pay their uh, their leaders. They, they do faith promises like they get halfway through the year and then. Churches run out of money, and these guys don't even get paid. So there's no money for a school in their budget. I said, okay. Have you ever heard of a a for-profit charter private school? Well, we've heard the term. We don't know what that means. I said, well, it's a school owned by people. I said, what if you and the vice president's family and us, lead, go into a partnership and set up a for-profit school? And they thought about that. Well, the the wife had a very uh, close friend who was a wealthy lady whose family owned jade and gold mines in northern Burma. She put up a building, like a 10,000-square-foot building. She put that into the partnership so we have a place to put the school. This was 15 years ago. We did a business plan realized that we need at least 75 students to be able to break even and make a profit or else we're not going to be able to make it sustainable. 200 students signed up. We made a profit from day one. The end of the first year. Okay. They made a $20,000 profit. Now let me give you a little explanation of the standard of living. Purchasing power uh, parity, the economists call it. What does a bag of rice or loaf of bread cost in America, and what does it cost in Burma? Well, I can tell you this. The president of the Bible College and the vice president, they were living on $75 a month. $75 a month was enough to feed them and their two children, their wife and two children. $75 a month. They make a $20,000 profit the first year. And they said, what do we do with this all this money? And we said, well, you tell us. What do you think you ought to do we oh, think got to tithe it. Okay, how much? 10%. What's 10% of $20,000? It's $2,000, right? Well, what should you do with the tithe? Well, we want to donate it to the Bible college because there was a mission back in America that was supporting our Bible college, and it stopped, and our professors hadn't been paid in five months. Well, how much is their back pay? 2000 bucks. They were able to celebrate Christmas that year. It was like a perfect example of showing that, you know what, I don't care how poor a country is, every country, if they're not in war, has an economy. And it might be a very low standard of living, but there's always a people are making money in every country, there's an economy going. Um, I've learned the hard way to try, not to try to make sustainable projects in a war zone because there's not an economy and it can't sustain itself, but that's a, that's a discussion for another day. So the school started, today, they went, uh, they now have 600 students, 40 teachers, they've been through two building programs, and now we're helping them in a third building program. So instead of just being a, just a preschool now, it's K through 12, um, and it's going to be, uh, it's gonna be complete. They just purchased a beautiful piece of property, and, and this is a country where um, it was very, I mean, socialism and communism about destroyed that country. Uh, the economy was just horrible. And now, now things have changed, and they're doing great. Uh, the, the, Bible, the Bible college is now self-sustaining. We've got three or four projects. The church association, we helped them with a rubber plantation, 10,000 trees that are just pumping thousands of dollars in their church association budget. They're sending missionaries to China and India. And they don't need us. So our job is to get in, do a project, and work ourselves out of the job. And that's how, that's how it works. So that's a good example of the intellectual or educational area. So the first category is the spiritual one. The second one is educational. The third one is social. There's a verse in James 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27. It says, pure religion before God is the care for orphans and widows. And at that same group out there, the Kachins in northern Burma, it's so a people group about three million people. They had an orphanage, but it was in a bad section of town. Uh, Their orphanage was overcrowded. There were human traffickers sitting outside waiting to pick these kids off when they wanted to run away. There were there were mobsters there waiting to pick these kids off for blood transfusions uh, because in China they thought if you get if you get a blood transfusion from a young person to old person that will help them medically, and basically they. They kill these young kids just for their blood. There's a whole red market. We, we could talk about the underbelly of the mafia. She hadn't even got into it. The red market of organ transplants that are illegally done when they just kidnap people and take their organs and leave them for dead. That's what we were facing in Kachinland. So we got we've got to move this out. So we were able to buy a, they said, well, there's a piece of property for sale right next to the Bible college. Where else better to put an orphanage except next to Bible college students and Bible college professors? And we thought, well, that's really good thinking. So that's what we did. We helped them buy a piece of property and then helped them buy an orphanage. And guess what? We didn't have to support the orphanage. You know why? Because the profits from the rubber plantation have been underwriting the orphanage and it didn't need any American money. I don't know how it's best to explain the breaking that cycle of dependency of, of trying to always having to support things from the states. You don't have to do it that way. And, and that's what we're looking at. The fourth area, we have talked about the spiritual, we have talked about the intellectual, we have talked about the social. And I need to tell you about uh, some of the social projects we got into that we didn't even desire, but we had to. There's groups, like I said, World Vision and Compassion. they do a great job. They, they're billion-dollar organizations that give away humanitarian aid and you know, things like that. But when you have a group of churches like we did in southern Burma where a tsunami came through and 160,000 people drowned and died in one afternoon and we had to take 36 church buildings and turn them into orphanages overnight. That's what we had to do. And they asked us for help. And we said, well, we're not going to send you relief because we're not a relief agency. If we send relief, we know what's going to happen. It's going to show up in Rangoon and some general is going to steal it and send it down there and say, the government of Burma just helped you. You know, that's what World Vision Compassion had to deal with. So we're not doing that. We're going to get money to you and you're going to go in a local market and from Christian businessmen and buy the relief goods from them and then send it down there. So it helps your local economy. It helps your local Christian businessmen who then helps their church, right? So that's how we try to do things organically, which is a different way of doing it. But that does bring us to the fourth one, spiritual, intellectual, social, and we've we got some great programs going with helping uh, AIDS orphans and uh, AIDS widows in Uganda. Uh, but the fourth one is economic. Now, the economic area, I have to tell you, having been in ministry almost 40 years, grown up in ministry, clergy are in the nonprofit world. Clergy really don't understand business. I'm sure many of you in business have figured that out by now, <laughs> that uh, we in clergy don't understand how to do business and do it well. Uh, but here's the thing. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians I really like. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 it says, let me give you a little context. The church in Thessalonica were being lazy. They were being persecuted. No one's giving them jobs. They didn't want to work. Apostle Paul writes them and says, Do your own business, work with your own hands, so you aren't dependent on anybody. We took that verse to heart. We started looking for projects, like that rubber plantation. We started looking for ways that could make money. And and the one that uh, we have, I have so many different examples where we actually made money. The biggest surprise was we bought some real estate and for like, I think for like $90,000 that seven years later the church association sold for $3.1 million because Chinese investors poured in and all the real estate appreciated like crazy. Uh, that was just a God thing. That, that you really can't plan for. I mean, there's, there's, there's risk in business. And then there's unknowns in business. And this was a, a very good up surprise on that one. But we've done about 10 or 15 business projects that uh, almost all of them have been successful. The key here is you've got you to gotta design a project big enough so if you have a profit, there's enough money to really make an impact for ministry, right? So if you, it's one thing to do, uh, get a family involved in a business and supports a family, all right? That's sustainable. That's great. That helps the church. I just had this conversation two weeks ago in Africa with a pastor that came to me. He says, our church is so poor. He says, I don't know what to do. We, we can't sustain the church. And he says, the only thing I know to do is we've got to evangelize more people. I said, well, evangelism is great, but you're going to evangelize more poor people? He goes, yeah. I said, well, you just have a bigger church of more poor people. goes, yeah, I I don't know what to do about it. I said, well, you gotta get them some jobs, you gotta get them some business, you gotta start some businesses. You know, every country has opportunity. Problem is they don't have capital. They can't get a loan from a bank, they don't have any collateral, because they're poor. So it's just a vicious cycle of poverty of working with it. Well, I was invited out last year to a to do to look at a, a project in Zambia. I've we've had really good success with agriculture. I know agriculture is a very risky business. We've done five projects in five different countries, and they're all doing very well, and they're all supporting ministry. And that's the goal, right? We want them to support ministry. It can be personally, privately owned, but at least we want these people to be godly enough to give to ministry, which is why we're doing it. So they said, well, there's a, we live in a farm belt, and our churches." I've, we have a small church association, and they're so poor, and we're trying to do a clinic, and we're trying to do a school, and we, we can't afford it. The problem is the missionaries want to retire, and they've been supporting it with American money. And once they retire, guess what? The money stays here. It stops going out there. And I've seen it from country after country. Then those ministries implode because uh, they were being propped up by American money not being propped up locally. And they're not felt like they're owned locally. And, and that's the real issue here. Who, who owns it? That's why I asked the Chins, who's going to own that school? It's all about ownership and private enterprise, right? Because when you have something personally at risk, you're going to make sure it works. You're going to try very hard, or else you're going to lose. If you have something that you're going to lose personally, you are motivated to try to make that business work. If somebody just hands you free money, And if business fails and there's no risk, sure, people will take your money. That's not really a solution, though. So what I'm talking about is sustainable development that impacts ministry. And so I said, well, let's start a farm. And I'm thinking, maybe I can get a grant for 60, 60 acres. People are growing macadamia trees. Macadamia trees, macadamia nuts, the most profitable nut uh, product you can you can grow. Uh, then there's pecans and other ones. This climate out there is like perfect for macadamia trees. So I thought, well, we'll do a smaller macadamia orchard. And I started doing the numbers and I'm thinking, they got a school and a clinic and it's got to be big enough. We're talking about scale here. It's got to be big enough to make it worth it. Well, the Lord just kind of shut that down. And I was like, what am I going to do, Lord? I, I got Some money to buy property. But they're either little pieces of property, like 5 or 10 acres, or they're huge commercial farms that are for millions of dollars because they're 10, 15, 20,000 acres. Nothing really in between. I spent the month of June last year going through the bush trying to find anybody to sell us a little piece of property. And only one piece came available the last day after 30 days. A farmer that had nine thousand acres, the big cattle ranches, had financial problems, needed some cash, was willing to slice off a little bit of his nine thousand acres, eight hundred acres, just a little slice. Now, eight hundred acres, if you're in farming, that's over a square mile. Six hundred forty acres is like, you know, it's like, Lord, I really don't need that big piece of property. The only thing that came available. It was incredible the price is incredible it was virgin land never been farmed so it's been god's been composting it for centuries right so i'm thinking this is great uh what do i do with 800 acres i go back to the wealthy farmer here in america who's was giving us money i said uh i know farming is expensive but i wanted 60 acres now i got 800 acres what do i do with it he says tell me what you need what you want to grow what you want to raise long story short uh, we're going to do three 400 head of livestock. We're not going to do 3,000 head of cattle like our neighbors. Uh, we're going to do a, a macadamia orchard. 25, 25 acres of macadamias in five years should be able to support the entire church association, school, and clinic. But we're going to go beyond that. Uh, we're going to do three or four other things. We're going to do commercial fish. So all of a sudden, these things are just popping up. Here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity. Produce. They're getting their produce from South Africa. It's horrible by the time he gets there. Nobody's doing fresh produce. Why? The small farmers are too small. And the commercial farmers are either growing hundreds of acres of tobacco or grain or they have 4,000 head of cattle. So they're in the big big leagues. Nobody's really in that little niche where somebody's just growing decent produce for the grocery market, market and the hotel market. So we're close to uh, Victoria Falls. A big tourist area. So this is how it works. I just got back from 30 days in the bush. Oh, this is great. I'm going out there, we're going to clear the land, we have got brush and trees, make farmland, we're going to make roads, we're going to bring commercial power in, we're going to drill, they call them boreholes, wells. Got to have wells for irrigation. And um, probably the most stressful 30 days of my life. <laughs> Being out there because there are still are hyenas and leopards, and there's still cobras, spitting cobras. They, we kill mamba, black mambas every day. We kill there's at least five or six pythons. I, I posted on Facebook recently a python hole this big, the side of a termite hill, it's that big. You want pythons can't dig holes. Well, you know, how do they get in such a big hole? You know, uh, well we have our aardvarks. You ever heard of an aardvark They eat ants and termites. And they dig like crazy. And so they dig through these termite, you know, these termite mounds the size of Indian mounds, okay? And when they get in there, guess who their predators are? Leopards, which we have. Hyenas, which we have. Pythons. Pythons love those aardvarks. Why? Because they go in there, they swallow the aardvark, and they just stay there. That's their den now. They just live there. So now we've got to get rid of pythons. We're working at it. Um, but just... Uh, it was funny. The first week in the bush, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm out here. We've got chainsaw. We're cutting down trees and rolling logs. And then the snakes. And then we started killing these deadly snakes. Now, you get bit by a mamba snake. Uh, you don't go to the hospital. You don't go to the doctor. You have 10 to 15 minutes. You just say goodbye to everybody. One of the deadliest snakes on earth. We have puff adders there, also very deadly. Um... And so when you start seeing the snakes being killed every day around you, all of a sudden now, it's like, and my, my Zambi guy said, uh, Dr. Phil, you're not, we're not letting you walk anywhere on this farm by yourself. I, I did make a mistake one day. I went up and took a chainsaw, and I, I cut down some brush because we wanted to get a well-drilling truck in. And, and somebody said, you can't leave him up there without a weapon. And somebody said, he has a weapon. He's holding a chainsaw. <laughs> so, I, you know, other than that, uh, it was... And there's bugs and there's critters. I would not even go into that. It's like we got it. This, we're pioneering. Well, this is virgin farmland, and we're, we're clearing it, and we're going to grow things and raise things for the kingdom. Um, I just didn't know how difficult it would be and how dangerous it would be. So after that, I was, next week I was a little paranoid, like, what's around here? Nobody has a gun. It's like and by the third and fourth week, you know, I'm just looking over my shoulder all day long. We're working, having a time in my life. Uh, that's what we do for a living, I just told you. We try to create enterprises that support ministry, that help this church over there, so they're self-sustaining. And we don't want them just to be self-sustaining. We want them to grow, like the Kachins. Their is growing because their businesses are growing. And then they're not dependent on money back here. So we worked in a persecuted church, and I work in low-income countries to try to help them get out of poverty and be able to support their own ministries so we can break this cycle of dependency. And that's kind of our ministry. You heard my wife's ministry working uh, with all these countries. I work in 22 countries. She works in 56. We appreciate your prayers. A billion dollars in our bank account won't make a difference if somebody gets bit by a mamba prayers of you praying every day for our safety out there safety from ambushes and thieves safety from from bad uh animals and and uh, deadly uh we're upsetting an ecosystem <laughs> for centuries these snakes it's been their territory and we're driving them out uh, that is dangerous work we have a crew of 68 guys out there with just axes and and because uh, our we can't seem to get our tractor shipment there Uh, We just need prayer. There's there's things only prayer can solve. I don't care how much money you have. We need prayer. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for supporting us for all these years. And thank you for giving us this opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, you've been so good to us. We live in a country with problems, but our problems are minor compared to many countries. We pray for the people of Ukraine today and Moldova and those other surrounding countries, the fear of war and the terror of that we pray for the christians there that you'd give them courage uh, we pray for our, our national believers and partners around the world that are in danger every day either from persecution or danger just from their environment they live in uh, we have it so good here lord help us never take it for granted thank you for this church and their faithfulness and their love for you and their love for missions We appreciate them so much, and we ask that you would bless them in the days to come. And thank you for this time this morning, in Christ's name, amen.
3: Turn your inbooks to uh, 485. I think the song fits the messages today pretty well, so you kind of listen to your words as you sing it, and uh, let's all stand and sing this song. would be pure, for there are those who care. I would be strong, for there is much to suffer. I would be brave, for there is much to dare. I would be brave, for there is much to dare. I would be friend of all the foe, the friendless. I would be giving and forget the gift. I would be humble, for I know a weakness. I would look up and laugh and love and live. I would look up and laugh and love and live. I would be prayerful through each busy moment. I would be constantly in touch with God. I would be tuned to hear the slightest whisper faith to keep the path Christ trod. I would have faith to keep the path Christ trod.
0: Mind you, there is the war display out there that they've told you is one of the ways that it helps support some of these uh, people that have been rescued and, and prevent them in that area. So that's an area you can look at. Uh, you may have questions you want to ask the McDonald's and, and uh, thankful to see how God's working and the part that you get to be just even in praying and supporting financially and and then to think about ways you can be involved in your own community and region and those kinds of things father we thank you for your love and mercy and grace and how you reach into impossible situations and bring hope and light we're thankful to have heard those reminders of your powerful working and continue to work in these ministries and through our ministry in jesus
1: name amen